1: Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. From the small
3: towns to the big cities,
4: we bring you
5: the stories that matter.
3: This is this is this is, this is
5: The Our American Stories podcast. <laughs>
4: This is Lee Habib, the host of the Our American Stories Podcast. We can't wait to bring you these fantastic stories from our team. We work hard day in and day out to bring you stories from everyday Americans. We tell the stories about this great country that may not be perfect, but it sure is beautiful. If you'd like to support us in all that we do here, visit our AmericanStories.com and go to the Giving tab. Join our team in the work we do and become a part of all that's going on here. We're a nonprofit. And we appreciate both one-time gifts and monthly donations. It's for you and through you that we tell these stories. And today, we have a Father's Day special episode. We're bringing you stories about all different kinds of fathers and their children. We have a story from Taylor Brown, a son's eulogy to his biker dad. Also, the story of Peter Mutabasi who went from being an African foster kid to an American foster dad. But first, author Leslie Leyland Fields, a writer from Kodiak Island, Alaska, shares the story of the heartbreaking relationship she had with her father. But it's not what you'd expect. Here's Leslie.
6: I never called my father worthless. That was his own word for himself. I had other words to describe him. But in a way he was right. He said it on the phone after I told him I was flying down to see him from my home in Alaska to the rehab facility in Florida. My sister had flown down already and was there with him now. Other siblings were coming later. He had had a stroke the week before and now could barely speak. I'll see you in about three weeks, I said, trying to make my voice cheerful on the phone. To lift him from his misery. I'm n- not worth, he stumbled. Of course you're worth it, I protested, horrified. But I knew instantly what he meant. In the human balances of justice and fairness, he had done nothing to deserve this kind of sacrifice and attention from his children. He could not or would not hold a job, leaving us deeply impoverished and ashamed throughout our childhood. He seemed incapable of forming relationships and treated his children as though we were invisible, except for the sexual abuse visited upon some of us. Soon after we grew up and left our house, he moved to Florida to live alone, thousands of miles from his children. I was glad. I saw my father three times in the next 30 years, always me traveling thousands of miles to see him. I went each time needy and hopeful that he would somehow express interest in me, show some kind of affirmation. I left each time hurt, hollow. He would barely speak to me, and when he did, he ridiculed my faith. The last time I saw him, I resolved never to go back. But eight years later, I was gently pushing his wheelchair down the hallway, sharing meals with him, watching TV in his room, reading to him. In all of it, I could not shake the injustice and inequity that every gift and kindness given he had never shown to me, ever. But something else was even stronger, a desire to forgive. I remembered what I believed, that God had released me from my debts against Him, and I knew He required me to do the same for those who owed me. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven. Could I not extend the freedom I had been given to Him? I began to try. Moving slowly from what C.S. Lewis calls need love to gift love, looking past my blinding needs as a daughter to see the pain in his life. Had anyone loved him, how might I have hurt him? After that visit, I knew I would return. I began praying for him, calling and sending gifts and letters. I realized it was not justice or equity I wanted most of all but relief often we think the cost of forgiving is too high but we do not consider the cost of not forgiving I found relief in releasing his debts against me especially as I realized my father could not pay what he owed me nor can many parents I found the yoke of forgiveness then lighter than the yoke of hurt and hate I found the yoke of caring for him easier than the burden of abandoning him and love came back yes in small doses he called me amazing one day he phoned on my birthday when I came to visit he didn't want me to leave all of this was new all of this broke my newfound heart Forgiving my father has changed me. The broken and bitter parts of me are healing. One forgiveness has led to others and to my own apologies from those I know I have hurt. I am moving toward the person I hope to be. My father was touched as well. In the last two years of his life, my worthless father was surrounded and blessed by the very ones he had harmed. I believe he felt loved perhaps for the first time we cannot heal all the broken families of the world but we can begin here with ourselves and our own families with god's forgiveness and love anything is possible
4: and a special thanks to faith for the beautiful production on that piece And a special thanks to Leslie Leyland-Fields for a superb and beautiful piece of writing. And my goodness, our show, well, we, we have people writing from everywhere, including Little Kodiak Island, which is a big place in Alaska. My goodness, what territory she covered. We can't heal all the broken families in the world. We can begin with our own families. And by the way, her faith, without it, I don't know how she would have pulled this off. We are to forgive as we have been forgiven, she started. I began to try moving from need love to gift love. By the way, if you have never read C.S. Lewis's Four Loves, you don't need to be a Christian to incorporate so much of what he wrote in that book into your life. Had anyone ever loved him? Wow, imagine starting to ask that question about the guy who just wasn't a good dad at all. I began praying for him. I had always thought that the cost of forgiving was too high, she said, but the cost of not forgiving was higher. I found the yoke of forgiveness lighter than the yoke of hurt and hate, and love came back in small doses. He called me amazing. He even called me on my birthday. And if you have a story to share, we want to hear it. Send them to ouramericanstories.com. That's ouramericanstories.com and click on the Your Stories tab. We can't wait to hear from you. Up next, Taylor Brown shares the eulogy he wrote in Garden and Gun for his biker dad entitled Two for the Road, a son's eulogy for his father. Here's Taylor.
5: My first big time riding his prized Y Glide, I drop it in this parking lot. We were on these back roads in North Florida, somewhere, just pine trees and straight roads, tar snakes, and um, we had stopped for gas. And he said, "Do you want to ride it?" And so I said, "Oh heck, yeah! You know, I want to ride it." So I was pretty excited. I was on the on a you know a much smaller, lighter, less powerful bike. So riding his uh, was a big treat. It's a beautiful bike, you know, chrome. He had modified it to be much more powerful. It was a really neat bike. So we we ride, you know, for a while and um, we pull into this, uh, I think it was an old gas station that had a gravel lot. And, you know, I'm pretty excited and I stick my foot out, you know, to prop the bike up as we stop and my heel just starts slipping on the gravel. And it was one of those things, sometimes these things happen almost in slow motion. And you know, this is a big 600 pound bike and it starts to just heal over and I have not got the kickstand down in time. And I just feel it, you know, there's nothing I can do past a certain point. I'm not strong enough to hold it up. So I drop it. Obviously there's gonna be some scratches and dents and all that kind of stuff. And I look at him, my biggest worry is, you know, the way how he's gonna react. You know, I feel just ashamed. And he looks at me, And he says, it happens to the best of us. What a difficult thing to remember in the heat of the moment and to say to your son when he's just dropped your prize motorcycle. I could tell that it wasn't necessarily even easy for him to say that. He was frustrated at the bike being dropped, but that's not how he reacted. And that was something that, you know, I think probably my biggest lesson from him was something that I learned that day and has st- stuck with me because it it came back again and again. It, it is that sometimes character requires you to place what is difficult over what is easy. And I just really saw it that day. That really, you know, stood, stuck with me. He was born on the 4th of July and That always kind of meant something to me. I'm not sure why, you know, when we would hear fireworks on 4th of July, he'd say it was for his birthday. And until I got a little bit older, that's what I I really thought. And he was the kind of man to me that, that was no surprise, that there would be fireworks for him. I was probably about five when he got his first motorcycle he'd had since, since I'd been around. And he got this Harley Davidson Sportster and you know so much of my childhood was wedged on the back seat of it i grew up on this little place called saint simon's island and around dusk a lot of nights we would get on his bike and i would sit on the back seat and we would do what we called the loop around the island we would do the same route and hit the same spots where we go over this causeway and we'd see the marsh when the sun was going down and we go through the tunneled oaks and we would go through what they call the village which is down where the fishing pier is and he would always go in this little alley between a couple of the bars and wrap the throttle and so so much of my childhood grew up attached to that motorcycle. It was really through the motorcycle that I think that he found the bridge to really connect. You know, he worked so much when I was a younger kid up until around high school. And around the time I was in late middle school, high school, he was really, I could just tell he made such an effort to connect and we did it through motorcycles. In uh, late 2016, we built kind of our first motorcycle together. And we called it Blitzen because we built it over Christmas and it had these big chrome handlebars that looked like antlers. And it was, the tank was kind of this dark red color that reminded me of Santa's sleigh. And I started doing these long rides on that bike solo. And my dad had always done these long rides sometimes on the weekend. When he was 67, he rode 9,000 miles all around the country. I hadn't done a lot of that on my own. And it was really when I started riding the bike long distance solo, exploring those back route, roads that I really understood what he found in doing that. It made me understand him so much better. Understand, I think, really the workings of his soul and heart and what moved him and what he found out there. It's like I found the same thing that he had, he had found out on the road. It's hard to describe, right? Of course there's all these words that we can put around it is it free the freedom of the road is it discovery that's part of it but I think that it's it really is something else it's it just lets your soul loose a little bit all the anxieties and the fears and the doubts just when you're out there riding they tend to just blow away I'm not sure exactly how it happens maybe it's because you have to be so aware of your surroundings you are on a motorcycle I think uniquely vulnerable you are closer to death. I had started on a long motorcycle ride down to New Orleans. I was actually going down to visit his sister, my aunt Mary Ann, and I decided to come down south and stay with my parents for one night. I met my dad in Savannah and we had lunch and we had a drink up on the, one of the hotel bars that looks over all the, all the river traffic in Savannah. It was just a really special day. And then that night uh, at home, he helped me come up with my route for the rest of the way to New Orleans. And this was not using Google Maps. You know, he had all these old atlases that had dog-eared pages that he'd used again and again to plan his trips from long before the days of, you know, global positioning systems and smartphones and all those things. And we wrote out the directions, actually, on note cards. I put in a sandwich bag and kept in my pocket. So um, that morning... I took off, Took off. it was a misty morning, and I headed south on Highway 17. I stopped for gas that afternoon, and my dad had ridden to lunch down the same highway, down Highway 17, to a little diner called Steffens, right over the Georgia-Florida line. And he'd actually sent me a picture of a model car they had on display at the diner. It was a 1940 Ford Coupe. And that's a very special car to us because it kind of stars in uh, my novel, Gods of Howl Mountain. It's this bootleggers car and one of the most popular cars for bootlegging in the early stock car racing days. And my dad and I had gone to car shows to actually go see these cars uh, as part of research for that book. I don't think I had a chance to to reply back and I just kept going along my way. And I got a call from my mom and um, I could tell immediately that something had happened. We didn't have a lot of details, but she knew that um, he had been on his way back from lunch on Highway 17, that same stretch of highway that I'd ridden just a few hours earlier, and a concrete truck had pulled out in front of him. And I went to the airport to rent a car to drive home. Certainly, I wasn't going to ride the motorcycle back. uh, At this time, it would take too long, and I didn't want my mom worried. And I was at the airport renting a car in Tallahassee, and my mom called and, and said that he was gone. He hadn't made it. And I was standing outside and it was about sunset and the sky was lit up, just fire colored. And I thought of all these trips, motorcycle trips that my dad had taken down to Florida. He used to love to go to a place called Cedar Key, another place called uh, Hudson. And he would go to the Gulf Coast where you could see the, the sun go down over the water and he would send me photos of a sky that looked just like that. And I had this feeling that he was gone, but. He would always be with me, and I saw him in that sky. It always felt like there was some extra connection with us and that, you know, I'd ridden that same motorcycle down that same road that day. I was on a long ride of my own. I was doing all the things that he taught me, you know. Um, And I couldn't help but feel that, you know, he was always going to be not too distant. I think that there are men who want to be like their fathers and men who don't. And I've never had any question
4: of which one I am. And what a beautiful story by Taylor Brown, and great work, as always, by Monty Montgomery on the piece. I think that there are men who want to be like their fathers and men who don't, and I've never had any question of which one I am, and that is so true. And luckily for some, we have fathers we want to emulate, and unluckily for others... Uh, we don't, and we're telling every kind of story here in our Father's Day special, the good and the bad. His Father's Day is a joyous time for some and a not-so-joyous time for others. By the way, you learned everything about his father when the boy, the young man, dropped Dad's precious, precious wide glide, First time ever using it. And Dad held it together, and he said, it happens to the best of us. My biggest lesson, he said that I learned from him was on that day. Sometimes character requires you to put something difficult over something easy, and it would have been really easy to yell at his boy. And we're so glad you found the Our American Stories podcast. Help others discover us by giving us a five-star rating. It really helps us out on Apple Podcasts and Spotify, or whatever platform you listen to us on. Help others find us so they can hear these amazing stories From this good and great country finally the story of peter mutabasi a man who ran away from his abusive father in africa got adopted by another family and would go on to foster and adopt children of his own right here
7: in america i grew up in a small village at the border of uganda and rwanda like most people there i had no idea what life was like beyond 50 miles my family could never afford daily rations of food. We grew our own many beans, peas and sweet potatoes that would carry the family for a few months out of the year. I began helping my mother garden at just four years old. We did not have running water or clean water nearby, so as kids had to walk two to three hours to fetch drinking water for the family. Poverty was all we knew, and there was never any time to be a kid. Life was absolutely miserable in every way. We never had anything in our lives that gave us an ounce of hope. Without enough food or even a penny to go to school, dreams or fantasy did not exist. We lived in constant survival mode. My family in particular was one of the poorest in the village. I never had a pair of shoes until when I was 16 years old. Our house was about 30 by 30 feet, so there was not much room. I never had more than two shirts or a mattress to sleep on. We kept warm by sleeping close together. On the ground, the oldest sibling slept on the side and the youngest, inside so we could keep our little ones warm. As the oldest, I had to grow up really fast. By the age of seven, I could do what adults did. Prepare meals, walk two to three hours to fetch water, help my mother in the garden, clean the house and animal den, and babysit my young siblings. At the age of four, I began to realize that my father was different from other fathers. Everything about how he talked, walked, and looked commanded a lot of respect and instilled fear in the house. If my father was home, I had to find a place to hide, making sure he did not see my face. I never had any kind words from him. Every day, he told me he wished I was dead. And to him, I deserved nothing good in life. His words cut through my heart and spirit to the point where I began to believe I was good for nothing, less than an animal, as he said. The reality of poverty told me that, but it was always worse to hear it from my own father. In addition to verbal abuse, he often hid us and denied us food. Worst of all, was watching my mother beaten daily. She tried hard protect us and intervene but she did not have power in the face of his wrath i never looked forward to tomorrow because i always knew the abuse of tomorrow would return the next day as i grew older the abuse became worse and it was clear to me that any day could be my last he was at some point going to take my life One night, when I was 10 years old, I remember my father sending me to get cigarettes. It was late in the night. On my way back, it was pouring rain and the cigarettes got destroyed. I knew that if I returned home, I would have to endure severe beatings. I was terrified. So instead of coming home, I decided to run away. I had never been more than 20 miles away from my village and I walked to the bus station and I asked one of the women there, which bus goes the farthest? I needed to find a place where he could never find me. So there I went with no shoes, one shirt, one sweater and a pair of shorts. At just 10 years old, I ventured into the unknown world all alone. When the bus stopped, I found myself in the largest city in Uganda, Kampala, over 300 miles away from my home. I was scared to death. They spoke a different language and life there was busy. In my village, I saw about one car a day, but here there were hundreds of cars and commotion was ceaseless. I quickly realized there was no turning back. I found other kids who lived on the streets and I learned how to survive. I learned that offering free labor for buyers and sellers of product was my best bet. Working hard has always been in my DNA. It was easy for me to do things. As a street kid, we knew how to make ends meet. It was the easiest to steal a few items of food in small amounts so people would not notice. At the end of the day, we would gather all the storing food we had corrected and roasted them over a fire once the city went to sleep. On one particular day, I offered labor for a family. They immediately gave me food. They gave it to me before I could even steal it. A few days later, I saw them again. At this point, I knew what car they drove, what time they came to the market, where they parked, and what produce they purchased. Little did I know that this one day would be the starting of an amazing friendship that would change my life forever. For a year and a half, they constantly came to the market and provided me with meals. After a year in, they said, we want to take you to school. I said yes, not really sure what I was agreeing to. Coming from an abusive house, I had never really learned to trust. Because they had fed me once or twice a week for such a long time, I started to believe that perhaps I really was a human after all. Not an animal or piece of garbage, as I had been told time and time again. They made me feel like I had potential. I was at the lowest point in my life. And they found me worth enough to give me an opportunity to belong, to be known. One other major reason why I agreed to go to school was because I was promised to be fed every day. I could not imagine a world or a place that had food for me on a daily basis. Finally, I agreed to go to school, not because I wanted to be anything, but because of the promise of the meal. Due to the compassion of the strangers, I was able to go to high school, college, and then got a scholarship to study in the United Kingdom and the United States. And here's how it changed for me. You know, I had never heard words of affirmation from my dad. And as I moved in with his family, it truly began to change my life. You know, I had words like, Peter, you're special. Peter, you matter. Peter, you have a potential to be who you want to be. Peter, you're brave for the life you've walked. And I think through those words, I truly began to have the sense of that I belonged somewhere, but also a sense that I was somebody. And that really, really changed my life. My goal in life has always been to help other kids, to provide a place for them to feel safe and loved. And so one day I was working for Uh, the International Committee of Red Cross in Geneva, helping kids and refugees. And I approached one little boy who was there, and he was an American helping. And so he got to know about me, and he said, hey, Peter, uh, if you had to go to the United States or go study abroad, would you like to go? And I said, absolutely. And so as soon as he went back, he applied for a scholarship for me. And that's how I managed to go to study in England and come to the United States. Since then, I've traveled to 101 countries working with World Vision, a Christian humanitarian organization to advocate for children in need all over the world. The kindness of one family changed the course of my entire life and I knew in my heart that I wanted to do the same for others, that I wanted to become a foster dad. I finally settled in Oklahoma to start real estate business after having a job that required me to travel 80% of the time. My house had two empty bedrooms and my mind could never settle knowing there were kids in the neighborhood that I needed a place to call home. But as a single man, I had no idea if they would allow me to foster. I had devoted my life to saving children in need, but it had always been from a distance. Through advocacy this time around i truly wanted to get my hands dirty and do exactly what that family did for me i had no home hope future and they gave me all that i needed and more i knew i wanted to do the same for other kids i knew how broken these kids were moving from one place to the next i had walked those roads before and i surely knew I couldn't understand what they were going through. I knew I had to love, and I had to be there for them. So, one day I decided to walk into the foster agency to see if they needed volunteers. When I chatted with the lady there, she asked me if I was interested in fostering. I said, yes, but I'm a single man. Her immediate response was, so? I was overjoyed. I had no idea that a single man could take on these responsibilities. That very day, I signed up to be a false dad and just four months later, I had my first placement. This journey has been full of tears of joy. It has taught me not to judge the parents of those children, but to understand them. It's been comforting knowing that I'm there for their kids as they sort their lives out. I thought reunifying kids to their parents was going to be easy, but it truly left a heart shattered to pieces. Still, in the end, I'm so happy to see the children reunited with their parents that love them. It's always the greatest joy to get that phone call a weekend, a month in, on birthdays to remind me what impact I've made on their lives. It has not been easy journey, especially when my placement have been with kids between two and five years old. Having an extra pair of eyes would have been helpful. It's almost impossible to go anywhere without the kids since I have no one to watch them for me. I'm always on my toes from the time they get up to the time they go to bed. In the training, we were taught not to read too much into the behaviors, but rather find the root cause of it. This requires a lot of patience and learning. Each child comes with different behaviors, and there was no warning as to when or how that time bomb would go off. I was always okay if this massive tantrum went off at home, but not in the store, in the school, or at the restaurant. People who did not know anything about you or your children always looked at you as the worst parent. At first, it bothered me, but after my third child, I thought, well, this is what you get. No apologies. I knew I no longer had to feel guilty about things I could not control. These kids have gone through what most adults have not gone through in their entire lifetime. They are all looking for someone to understand them, someone to hear them out, someone to comprehend their behaviors when they have no idea how to control or describe them. I find that most of the time, you don't have to understand them. You just have to love them as who they are. And in so doing, they will let us know what they are feeling and how we can help them. It's a beautiful thing. Recently, I went through with the full adoption process for my oldest. It's been a whole different journey with different emotions. One side, it's hard to know that my child has been rejected over and over by his own family and then other families. It's hard to imagine how that has affected him, his mind and emotions. But on the other side, it's a blessing knowing he is mine forever. That despite the messy journey ahead of us, I'd be there to pick up the pieces with kindness and love. Most people say he's lucky to have me, but I believe I'm the one lucky one. He's shown me how to love and care best and how to set my priorities right in life. As a kid, I didn't have someone who loved me. As a kid, I didn't have someone who would tell me the words of affirmation to encourage me, but I had done something good to remind me that I was a good kid or even to tell me that I mattered and that has been my my job to help kids understand that they are seen hard and they are known I came up with a place a platform a company now I'm known why now I'm known well I wasn't known no one knew what i was going through i was nobody i was a street kid i was treated more like a stray animal but this stranger made me known how did he make me known by telling me words like i matter that i was special that i was a gift to him that's what helped me to excel and do well in life and i wanted to do the same for my kids but also I know I can't have all the half a million kids in the foster care, but maybe find a way on how we can create a platform to share a little of who we are. As parents as well, sometimes we forget to use the words of affirmation to them. And that's why we created something to remind us every day. Well, we created a bandana with 12 words of affirmation. Sometimes I forget. Or sometimes when my kids don't want to listen to me, they can't hear me out. So here's what I did. We have a dog named Simba. And this dog has been the best therapy we could ever ask for. Well, what does he do? Well, he wears the bandana with the 12 words of affirmation. So sometimes when I can't remember to use them, he's there to remind us of those words Sometimes the dad, I'm not the best dad and the kids don't want to hear me or they're mad and they go to their room. But usually they take the dog with them and they get to read those words when they cannot hear me out. And I've seen the impact that has done for my kids that has given them a sense that they belong, that they can be heard. And so we created also a plushie. And this plushie has also 12 words of affirmation why for those kids that we can never reach that maybe when they're in a the home wherever they are that they can read words of affirmation and know that they are special that they are matter for every plushie we sell one goes to the kid but we made them twins they have numbers special unique numbers that when you buy one that number will always be the one number and then a kid somewhere get your twin number it's another small way that our readers our followers we know you can't all be foster parents we know you all can't be respite families but maybe you can play a small part maybe a plushie that can help you but also help a kid
4: And a special thanks to Joey for the production on that story and for bringing it to us. And, of course, a special thanks to Peter Mutabazi. And what a story he told. My goodness, the kindness of one family changed the course of my entire life. That's one of the things we're trying to get across here on this show, is what we can do, we who've had the privilege of having fathers. How we can help those who haven't. And that kindness to a stranger. Well, look what it did. As we often say on the show, you can't change the world, but you can change a world. And that is the best way to change the world, by changing one life, one life. He became an advocate for kids but wanted to foster kids himself and then soon came to adopt himself. I knew I had to love. I knew I had to be there for them, said Peter. The story of Peter Mudabatsi here on Our American Stories Father's Day Special. If you've missed any of our previous podcasts, please go back and listen to them. We have a story from Edie Hand and the grief her family experienced, the story of Hetty Lamar, the most beautiful woman in the world, and also the story of a Cuban refugee who created the Coors Light silver bullet can, plus so many more. Thanks again for listening. I'm Lee Habib. And this is the Our American Stories podcast.